Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour, and today is Monday, January 15th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. On the website at whyagain.org, if you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book, his book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would greatly appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Call that number, press 1 on your phone, and it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. 
I'll see that and turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. Or you can email us. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And we appreciate that uh, any kind of feedback because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service. And that's just a whole lot easier to do when we know how these things are landing for you. So let us know how we can be of service. What's on your mind? How is it landing for you to experience the way of mastery being read with commentary or the process of going over other books and introducing different worksheets like Diedrich Olzak's worksheet or Byron Katie's worksheet or the list goes on. Sedona Release Method, Ho'oponopono. We've talked about quite a few different processes that are all basically geared in the same kind of direction. Um... I had the experience over the weekend of hearing a um, well it's a whole podcast and the podcast um, focuses on Liz Gilbert. Liz Gilbert is um, most known for her book titled Eat, Pray, Love, but she's continued to do her work and write and travel the world, etc. And one of the things that she's done, apparently for over 20-some years now, is she gives herself permission to take time to write herself a letter as though unconditional love were answering or writing her the letter. So if she's got a question or a problem, if she's looking for inspiration for the day, she gives herself permission to write as though unconditional love, God, light, love, the universe, whatever you want to talk about it as, was was writing back to her. And so they were presenting this on the podcast titled We Can Do Hard Things. And there are two different podcasts that that look at this. I believe they're 268 and 269. And in the first one, Abby Wambach um reads her letter, and in the second one, Glennon Doyle reads her letter. And um, in 
in Glennon Doyle's letter from Unconditional Love, she talks about forgiveness. Now, as most people know, if they listen to Mind Shifters Radio or come to our support groups, this work is built around what Michael Rice has found in the Caboris Manuscript, which is the oldest known copy of the New Testament, which was being translated directly from the ancient Aramaic into English. And and in the Course in Miracles, he found the same definition for forgiveness, which is a completely internal process having only to do with the individual who's having any kind of an upset and helping that person put away everything they think they want and everything they think they know and cancel all their goals. And that's the process of forgiveness, to cancel or shebag, to dismantle judgment and perception. And the essence of that and the dynamic the dynamics behind how we create our perception and our judgments is at the core of this work. So Glennon Doyle takes on Liz Gilbert's practice of writing as though she was being written to from unconditional love. What does unconditional love have to say? And Glennon said, okay, Let's talk about forgiveness, in quotes. And Glennon says, I was thrilled and delighted because I've been dying for someone to explain forgiveness to me for so long. And then Glennon says, what are the chances? I know. Okay, anyway, okay, let's talk about, quote, forgiveness, close quotes. I love Glennon, I love that you're still chasing this idea. Now, this is love talking to Glennon. I love that you're still chasing this idea. I love that you absolutely refuse to pretend to understand it. I love that you let ideas you don't yet understand drive you absolutely nutty. Nutty. These big ideas like forgiveness, they flash around on the periphery of your mind like the sliver of silver on a fish's back or a shooting star you think you saw or a firefly that was right there. Wait, no, now it's over there. Wait, no, where'd it go? Some are okay with these glimpses and then they go on. But you, Glennon, you can't go on until you've chased down and trapped the firefly of an idea in a jar. And then you've stared at it so long that you know it's real. That you understand it in your bones. That you testify to it even. Sometimes the firefly idea suffocates to death in your jar. That is true. 
but still, I love this about you. It's what makes your relationship so promising. It makes our relationship so promising. Because you're always right on my heels, Glennon. It's funny, though, you've never before invited me to stop. You just keep chasing me. You've never before said, wait, sit down with me so I can ask you my questions and you can tell me what you know. You actually don't have to keep chasing and killing fireflies. We can just talk and I'll tell you all about them. Let's start with forgiveness. You're right not to believe in forgiveness, but not because it's not real. It's just never once been explained to you correctly. You just don't believe in the wrong version of forgiveness. Well done. Let's first review those forgiveness ideas that you've rejected because they died in your jar. You're right. It's not about letting go. It's not about finally understanding. It's not about deciding if something someone did to you is right or wrong. It's not about feeling mad, about not feeling mad anymore. It's not a gift to bestow or withhold. It has absolutely nothing to do with decisions or feelings or actions or relationships. It's not about being a bigger person or a good person or morality. Forgiveness is about distance. It's about perspective. It's about zooming out. Clennon, remember those highlight magazines you used to read over and over again when you were little because it was the only reading material at the babysitter's house? Remember the pages at the end of those little puzzles that had those puzzles? One was called something like Magic Picture. And the idea was you would study a picture of something that was indecipherable, impossible to identify. There was one magic picture you stared at for hours to try to figure it out. It was swirling, glimmery, with tiny silver lines flashing throughout. It looked to you like magical crystal and purple mountains or hills with rivers traversing them. You finally turned the page to see the follow-up picture, which was the big reveal, the answer, the key, which was simply the exact same image but zoomed out a thousand times. And you saw now that it was an entire forest with one humongous tree with one massive leaf upon which one dragonfly was perched, attached to which were two beautiful wings made up of those shimmery purple mountains that were actually the scales of a dragonfly, dragonfly's wing. Well, it's been 40 years, and you still remember both of those images like they were the most important pictures you'd ever seen. 
here's why for today. So I could use them to help you understand forgiveness. Forgiveness is not deciding whether your father's anger was right or wrong, okay or not okay. It's looking at one of those moments. You are 13, he is yelling, you are afraid. A magic picture. And then eventually, after you've looked at that moment for years, decades maybe, however long it takes to let that scared little girl speak, for her to say every last thing she needs to say about how confused and lonely she was, about how she wishes it were different, about what she needed and didn't get. After she said every last thing she needs to say and assures you that she feels heard and safe and can promise you that, after all of that, it's turning the page. It's zooming out a thousand times. It's seeing the same image, but now it's an entire lifeline you're seeing. And maybe now you're also able to see him when he was 10. And it's him and his father. And it's not just yelling, it's hitting too. And then it's his father with his father. And he's small and hungry and afraid. And now it's his father. And they're on a ship fleeing a famine. And it's his father with his father And none of it is okay or not okay. You see, it's all just what is and has been. You just see all of what is and has been. If you want to know what God is, God is just a better view. And forgiveness is just zooming out a thousand times until you have my view. My view is just, well, you know that thing you have called Google Earth? You can Google one address and zero in on it. And then you can zoom out until you see the street and then the neighborhood and then the continent and now the planet from a point in outer space. My view is just, it's like I can Google Earth every last one of you And then zoom out forever until I see not just your planet, but the entire universe. And then the beginning of time till the end of time all at once. And I promise you from where I stand, every single last one of you makes perfect sense. That's why you people have to think of heaven as so far above. Because you know that heaven is just perspective. Someday you'll have a perspective like mine, wide enough to have hold the whole world and you'll forgive everybody. Then it'll be automatic. It's just what happens when you can see. For now, you just keep zooming out. Just stand back and see everybody and especially yourself, as wide and as high as you possibly can. You make perfect sense. Your father makes perfect sense. Every last one of you does. Every single one of you is just a magic picture. 
and I get to see the second image, and that is forgiveness. From Glennon Doyle, writing to herself from unconditional love. We Can Do Hard Things, podcast number 269. Also recommended, podcast number 268. Call in number 563-999-3581. Call that number, press 1, let us know what's up for you. How is it resonating for you? What did you hear on a Friday show if you were here? As I continued to read from the way of mastery. I have no idea where I left off with the way of mastery because I wasn't reading from my book. I was reading from a Kindle. I suppose my phone can tell me that. What's your understanding of forgiveness? Oh, I don't look for that. What is your understanding of what the way of mastery is calling us to? How is it resonating for you? I'm trying to pull up on my Kindle the same device I had on Friday where I didn't have internet at home to figure out where I left off in the way of mastery. The primary characteristic of mastery. So it wasn't too far after this. This paragraph where I said these two paragraphs really, really get me. The one is about the curriculum, the only curriculum there is that that life offers. Well, what I just read from Glennon Doyle is like that only curriculum. It's the idea that everything's going to make sense when you get to see the totality of it. It's only from our zoomed-in, myopic, judgmental little pictures that we arrive at a decision that someone is bad or wrong, that we generate our upset, etc. And we can we can choose to zoom out, we can choose to step back and observe. Area code six one zero, is this Susan? Hi, Dr. Tim. The, the way you read that was just fantastic. I have to do a certain amount of adjustment when I, because I listen to those podcasts, and <clears throat> there's so much femininity in there. <laughs> what I think of as femininity, giggling, laughing, uh, yelling about hair or no hair, and doing things, and then they get to this, incredible input but for me I have to kind of be patient 
about the delivery um, because I don't feel as if I would fit in that group and I have to sort of talk myself into the fact that that doesn't matter. I, I have all these fantasies about how I've never been that feminine, I've never cared that much about my hair, whether it was on my head or not. I, I picture them like living in a sort of a, a pastel pink and blue world, and then they get to this very serious stuff. So I'm just saying it was much easier for me to hear you read that letter, which is, and I appreciated it so much when she read it too, <clears throat> but it was just I didn't have to deal with wake-up sheet material in order to, to listen. <laughs> That was one thing. But the main thing is being given the idea that all we have to do is put distance between the trigger or whatever it is. Simply distance, which is just so absolutely neutral a thing. And we can get a foothold by just stepping away, stepping away enough so that we have another perspective that I'm going to use that a lot and the visualness of it is wonderful just the simple exercise of stepping away anybody could do that <clears throat> so that was just another tool another good tool yeah and the, the bottom line for me is that um, what the the way of mastery was trying to talk about this um, the incredible importance of recognizing that every one of our judgments is false. Mm. <clears throat> But this doesn't start there. It just says step away. It doesn't right, say right. And, wrong. And then, and then, and then we actually start to see. Yeah. That every time we've judged that something's bad or wrong or doesn't make sense, it was only because we were only looking at a zoom in of a tiny little piece of the big picture. Mm-hmm. So good. The questions they asked in the first episode, 268, I don't remember which of the women asked, whose voice is this? Is this my voice? Because if it is, I'm just going to not pay any attention to it. And then another one of them said, it doesn't matter. That was a tremendous revelation, too. Exactly, right? Whether whether the truth comes from my voice or somebody else's voice doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The truth is we just the truth. We don't have to know that. Yeah, we don't have to know that. It's sort of like, um, where does it say, if it's loving, it comes from God? Is that the Course in Miracles reworded by me? But... Probably. There's something, 
Okay. Years ago, I was very, um, I took a fairly deep dive into the uh, Christian science world. And um, one of the lectures that I heard, and I, I listened to quite a few of them, but one of them that I heard was um, about how can you know if something that you're thinking is right or wrong? And this this you know nationally renowned public speaker, all, all granted only through the Christian Science Speaker Network, but she gave a talk about how you you only want to treat it as though it's right if you can trace it back to a God thought. Is this a thought mm. that God would have? And mm, if not, wonderful. then we know we're off the mark. Mm-hmm. So if there's any rage in it, if there's fear in it, if there's you know personal offense in it, then we know it's off the mark. That's great. The thing about having that perspective, I'm going back to the visual again, when she zoomed out so far that she saw what was really in that picture. (laughs) When you do that, or when I do that, the opposite becomes possible too. I can't remember her first name now. Ms. Vega, who wrote that paper that you have on your Erica. website. Erica. Erica. Okay. When she says, I get to do this, that's the other side of the picture. That's when you get to see the vein in the dragonfly's wing. You get to be right in that moment, which is like zooming totally in. And as soon as you get in there, there's a kind of freedom and release in that. Like, I get to do this, then I'm right here. And not only that, but I'm loving it. I'm I'm happy about doing it. Even the weirdest, silly things, like loading food into the basement of the church this morning. Um, I was thinking, I get to do this. And all of a sudden, I guess the word, the word gratitude has always been a hard one for me, but that's what I felt. I felt glad. I felt thankful that I got to do this. And that seems like part of this picture. It's the zoom in part. All of these things you've been suggesting we listen to or read, they're all coming. It's as if we're standing on the outer circumference of a huge circle and the center is where we're trying to get and if we get to stand in one spot on that and look at the center thing we have access to the center thing that's my own little visual right there but I guess I'm just appreciating how all of these tools seem to bring the other tools to life and help us apply them. Well, 
Well, it's like the idea that um, you know, there's this great big wheel, and we're out here on the edge, and there are an infinite number of spokes in the wheel, and they all go to the mm-hmm. center. They all they all feed from right. the center. And but if we're way yeah. out here on the edge, mm-hmm. I can only see you know my little part of the arc. Mm-hmm. That was and much so, better put than I did. Yeah. And and, and the, the person next to me who sees a different part of the arc, they they see farther to the left or right than I can, and so they come up with a different interpretation. And I, I, I mentioned that I would keep the group here, the, the Internet audience, informed about this book from um, Sri Yukteswar, who was the guru of Paramahansa Yogananda, and he wrote this book because his guru had said, I want you to write this book because you you talk mm. so much about how there's so much benefit to the uh the science of the west and the religions of the east and how they're all basically looking at the same thing. I want you to write a book about it. So he wrote this book. And the whole first part of the book is a part that my brain has never been good at processing. Mm. It's all about numbers and levels of existence and worlds and and so I'm not I haven't said too much about it although as he talks about it as he's talking about reading from the book of Genesis or the Torah it it fits I mean he's 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 basically saying look all of these different spokes come from the center. There's only this one center. There's only this one truth. Mm. And we're all in the process of waking up to that one truth. Whether we realize it or not. But that's that's mm-hmm. our it's you know, like like the way of mastery was saying, there's just this one curriculum. That's all. There isn't a whole series of curriculums. There's only one. You don't get to choose whether or not you take your lessons in that curriculum. You only get to choose whether or not you delay taking those lessons. Mm. There's just one thing to learn, and that is that all life is this flow, and you're a part of it, and so is everything else. And like this Glennon Doyle thing says here at the end of her letter from love, it says... Every last one of you makes perfect sense. Every single one of you is just a magic picture. And I, as the creator, as boundless love, I get to see Mm. the second image. That's the real process of forgiveness. So it's all going to make sense once we see life the way the Creator sees life. I remember once, not too very long ago, a few years ago now, I had a 15-year-old in my office, and he was um, he was connected with a, a church group. So he was, uh, I think it was a Lutheran church group, and he was really you know, trying to find his way out of some really dark times in his own life. And uh, 
friends who'd committed suicide and things like that through this church group. And so, um, so he was saying something about how he had started to, one of his church leaders had um, told him about how to start praying for God to work some miracle in his life. And I just, you know, as sometimes happened, I was just strongly moved, even though I don't usually um, tread on anything that anybody else's spiritual teacher tells them. I was moved to suggest that a better prayer would be help me see the miracles you're already doing. Help me see how everything is a miracle. Mm, wonderful. Well, that would go right in line with what Glennon was being inspired to write about here. Everything makes sense. Your mm. father makes perfect sense. You make perfect sense. Every last one of you makes perfect sense. Every last one of you is a magic picture, and I get to see the second image. So when I create a picture of judgment, it makes perfect sense to me because I'm the one that's creating the image and I'm the one that has this restricted view and I'm the one that has this history of trauma, etc. And yet, if you have the second image to the magic picture, you get to see the real thing. You get to see that it makes sense without all of the negativity, without all of the judgment. <coughs> And it is possible to see that. That's what we're, we're being invited into with the way of mastery. Just step into questioning everything, asking to be shown, understanding that whenever you have a tightness or a tension or any kind of bitterness or resentment, it means, without fail, it means... You're in error. Your thoughts are in error in that moment. And so, you know, right right in the beginning, in the very beginning of the book, it says, hey, um, the promise I give you is that if you put away everything you think you know, come into that empty-headed not-knowingness that they talk about a little bit later in the book and put away everything you think you want, cancel every goal you have, and ask to be shown how to look lovingly on everything that's already happened. Ask to be shown the magic picture from the Glennon Doyle situation. Mm. Then your, your awakening your peace, your serenity, your joy, your bliss is guaranteed. And that's that's in the promise before the way of mastery even starts.
how can I look at my situation? I think it's Abraham Abraham Hicks that talks about how whenever you look at something, a person, a situation that's happened, or any other people around you, and you generate any kind of negative emotion, Abraham says the discomfort you're feeling, the negative emotion you're feeling, is a direct result of the fact that you've chosen to view life differently than the creator's viewing life. Differently than source energy, God, light, love, would view that situation or your brother or sister. And the discomfort you're feeling is not because you're right and they're wrong. The discomfort you're feeling is because you've chosen to view something differently than the truth of what it is. And that resonant energy of discomfort is something you could use as a guide, as part of your guide system to know, oh, I'm in pain. My thoughts must be in error. That's right out of the most recent reality management worksheet from Michael Rice. So here's the, here's the built-in guidance system. The only question is, have we been told to interpret it incorrectly? And will we use it once we've been given the template, right, the, the instructions for how to use it correctly? <clears throat> will I choose to understand that all the discomfort that I experience in my life, physically, mentally, and emotionally, most of it even physically, but definitely mentally and emotionally, is the result of an error in my internal processing. Will I step into that awareness or not? Will I choose to continue to believe what the world has taught me, that things around me, outside of me, are going wrong and they're causing my upset? Um, I read the newspaper probably more than I should, but... I'm thinking. I'm trying to apply what you're saying and what Glennon Doyle said in her letter to what's happening around us. Or even, you know, I mean, I've complained about this before. Whenever I do this huge grocery shop for supplies for the refugee center, I go to Costco where everything is in plastic. This is one of my issues, just, you know, everything is packaged in plastic. I feel as if I can buy fewer and fewer things because, like, my favorite green greens are now not in a cellophane bag anymore. They're in a big plastic tub. Same with spinach now, and spinach was one of the last holdouts. And I'm I'm escalating that to total catastrophe. Like, there's no hope for us. There's no hope for us. So I'm thinking in Glennon Doyle's terms, I have to zoom out really far and stay out there 
and allow the complete annihilation of all humanity as we know it and be okay with it. have to get that far away from it. It's a huge challenge. I'm sure it's a huge challenge for everybody, but it sure is for me. So I, you kind of lost me when you said, I have to allow the complete annihilation of humanity. What are you, what are you referring to there? Climate change getting to the point where we are inundated in plastic and global warming has done us in. This is an old issue, as you know. I've been around this block a lot. Or, you know, we get someone in power who is not going to allow democracy to continue, uh, but it'll be another kind of government, very repressive, and maybe we'll end up in massive annihilation of humanity or get into these wars, all the extreme stuff. We have to be able to allow all that. We have to be far enough out in the galaxy to observe Earth in its entirety and whatever happens to it and be okay with all of it and not be upset. Doesn't that make sense? Well, the the first thing that comes to my mind is, rather than saying we have to allow for the annihilation, what, what, what this work is telling us is we have to understand that it's only our thoughts about the annihilation, all of mankind, that are creating our upset. Because the annihilation of mankind hasn't happened yet, you're just mm-hmm. creating all of this tension and upset because of plastic wrap being around your favorite food. <laughs> and then and, and then and then you're extrapolating that to the end of all humanity and annihilation of yeah. all humanity, et cetera. And so this mm-hmm. work isn't telling us, Oh, there's no problem with plastic wrap. You know? This isn't saying don't worry about anything because everything's okay at that okay. microscopic level, right? They're, they're saying, oh, you know, if you were in a store and you see a parent beating on a child, don't worry about it. Just let it go. It's not your kid. This, there's nothing in this work about that. This is just about clearing the space in your mind from the errant thoughts, the false perception before you go take an action on it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so you're 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 putting yourself into this state of agitation and despair and upset and anger and that is distorting your perception. That's keeping you in that first little magic picture frame where you're looking at the myopic thousand times magnified part of a of a butterfly's mm. wing or whatever. Mm. And and so it looks to you like a mountain with silver lines on it when really it's just a butterfly wing. And the biggest thing is not the truth of what is it is that you're looking at. The biggest thing in this work is What's the feeling you're creating in response to it? 
Right. And waking so, up to the fact that it's you creating that feeling. It's not being created by the truth of the outside world. Okay, so I'm kind of misusing the big picture then. I'm thinking in order to be the biggest, huge picture from a far, far, I'll have to be way, way far away to get some equilibrium. Well, I would encourage you to just bring it back to the basics and say, look, if I'm generating any kind of tension or fear or upset or negative emotion, I can instantly know my thoughts are off the mark. And so the most useful thing I can do is cancel the thought and the goal, cancel the knowing that I'm right and asked to be shown something else. That's the core of Michael's worksheet process. It's also the core of the Byron Katie work where it's just, listen, I only suffer when I believe my negative thoughts. So can I question these negative thoughts? Yes, I can. The more I question them, the more I can understand, you know what, I really don't know much of anything. I can go into what the way of mastery would call me to in this empty-headed not-knowingness. Mm. Right? I, I, at this level, at this physical level, at what I've been taught in my school of science, etc., and I, what I've been taught by my religion, etc., I know this, that, and the other. Okay, that's good. Does knowing this, that, and the other leave you in bliss? Well, no, I'm so upset. Okay, then I can know if I choose to use what what tools are being offered here, I can choose to know, okay, my thoughts are off the mark. My perception is myopic. It's microscopic. And I, I would probably benefit by taking a different look from a bigger perspective. I would probably benefit by softening and breathing and questioning how am I creating the upset I'm feeling right now. And and there's nothing in this about seeking ultimate truth. This is just about recognizing a fundamental truth that I create my upset. Mm-hmm. That that I'm creating my experience. It's like the CIA website where it has that chapter on a book about perception where it says, what? the title of the chapter of the book, I believe, is Why Can't We See, Why Can We Not See What's Right There to Be Seen? And the conclusion that they draw is because our perception doesn't record reality. Our perception constructs our reality. How many people do you think walking through the Costco when you're walking through the Costco are getting as upset as you are? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> well, there may, there may be one or two, but 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 the, the the critically important observation there is that if the way these things were wrapped was actually causing your upset, then everybody who saw the way these things were wrapped would have the same intensity and the same flavor of upset. I don't think that's true, Dr. Tim. You don't? No. Okay. 
what do you think? Maybe I didn't understand you. Maybe I didn't understand what you just said. Did you say anything? Okay. Here's the example I give. We have this family, and and we would go to a restaurant, and there'd be, you know, 10 or 12 of us. You know, we had to wait a long time for them to get ready to pull all these tables together because we're a big family group. Every time we do it, somebody gets upset. Why is it taking so long? Why did the waitress screw up that order, this, that, and the other? Now, there's 12 of us at this table. Two or three people are getting upset, and they think they're upset because the waitress made a mistake or it took so long to get this or that, or somebody put, they put, you know, too much salt in there, whatever. And they think they're upset about that. And three or four people are trying to calm them down and say, relax, finish your story, you know, we'll just get another drink, it's fine. And four or five other people are completely ignoring the whole thing. They're not even noticing that those two, three people at the other end of the table are upset. Mm. Now, how can we know that those two people are not upset about what is going on at the restaurant? Because if the thing that was happening, the waitress made a mistake or somebody oversalted the peas or whatever, then everybody who found out about that would have the same flavor and the same intensity of upset if the upset was being caused by the outside event. Now, if the waitress came to the head of the table and we're all sitting there in dry clothes and she had a fire hose with her and she opened it and sprayed us all and made us all wet, we could say she made us all wet. Mm. Because what she did added water to a dry set of clothes, and now the clothes are wet. But what I keep saying is, even if that happened, in my, in my family as an example, and the waitress came to the head of the table and or the busboy and opened up the fire hose and blasted and cups flying all over and everything, it, we'd have a whole range of different emotions. My 30-something sons would be like, oh, man, this is amazing. Who's getting punked? Where's the cameras? My My mother might just be all confused what's going on. My brother might be angry and raged. My sisters might be scared. And is all, are all of those emotional responses being caused by the water spraying from a hose? No. The emotions these people are experiencing are created inside themselves each and every time an emotion arises. It's coming from inside the person. And it only exists inside the person that's creating it as an experience in that moment. This is how you can know you're not getting upset about plastic or about global warming or about how Costco packages your favorite food. You're generating upset. And if you choose to use it this way, Way of Mastery as one of the many teachings we're presenting says you're 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 able to use it in that moment as an alarm system as a wake up call as a fire alarm telling you hey tim there's something in error about what you're using you're choosing to use your mind energy for right now because if there was actually something wrong and you remained at peace and your vision was wide open, if you had that magic picture and the answer picture, you would know instantly what to do 
to affect positive change based on whatever you have control over in the moment. And you would just act on it. You wouldn't generate a negative emotion and then march on through your day with that negative emotion churning inside of you. Is this making any sense? It's making sense. I got stuck, though, just at the end when you said, you, if you saw this, you would, if you were at peace, you would know what to do and you would do what you could do. And Based on what, what you have control over. What, based on what I have control over. So in this issue of the plastics, I feel as if I have no control or very little. I do what I can. I don't buy the darn thing that's in the plastic bin. But that doesn't... I still... It doesn't change your thoughts. It doesn't change your thoughts. Right. I have this level of hopelessness. Well, remember, come back to the the, the worksheet you did that's available as a highlight on, um, you know, the wayofmastery.com where you, you... you saw that picture on a magazine about the world on fire, the earth on fire, and you did that worksheet, and, and it went back to your childhood trauma. It's going to work that way almost every time. We won't get as many worksheets that come with that powerful insight, but there will almost always be a decrease in the upset because we shift our mind energy away from the thoughts we were pouring our mind energy into that generated all the upset in the first place. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yeah. we'll, we'll get a, a powerful insight like you did in that one worksheet, but other times we'll just get the relief of not, you know, of having a period of time where we're not pouring our mind energy into the thoughts that are generating that intense upset. Yeah, that's true. And then when we do that over time, we you might think of it as conserving your own energy. Mm-hmm. your own mental, emotional, creative energy. And as you conserve that energy, then there's more of your energy available to do good things at the church, to do good things for global warming when that comes up, if you're on one of those committees on some government. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter where, but you'll have more energy to direct. And because you're not trying to see life through the filters of the negative emotional states, which are always distortions on perception, the way of mastery calls them the veils. When you're not trying to look at life through those veils and distortions, you get a clearer picture and you see more instantly and clearly where you might intervene and what you might do as an intervention that would be of use. At least that's what I'm getting from these tools and what way of mastery is mm-hmm. presenting and what Glennon Doyle is right. Getting from, you know, unconditional love when it writes a letter to her. Right. And I see that that's as far as we can go. We can do that. We're doing what we can do. And then when we change that energy within us, then we're radiating mm -hmm. out a more peaceful, loving energy into the quantum soup. That's a big thing. Mm -hmm. You can have your ego say, oh, that's no big thing. That's nothing. It doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a big thing. What, what you're contributing energetically to life is a big thing. So I realize we've run out of time. Thank you so much for the oh. 
comments, questions? Oh, thanks and for going I, over it again, Dr. Tim. The same you're entirely stuff. welcome. You're welcome <laughs> and deserving. I'll mute you so that you can listen to the second hour. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I'll turn on the microphone for and welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. And how is your weather today? I think we got it. We got your snow. We're snowed in today. We have the minus 12 actual degrees with wind chills in the minus 30s and 40s. Oh, good grief. Well, I think uh, in a few days we're supposed to be minus 6, but yeah. Oh, man. Everybody stay stay warm. Yeah, stay healthy. Blessings. Thanks. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio, and today is Monday. January the 15th, 2024, and our call-in number is 563-999-3581, and when you press 1, that puts you into queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and questions, because that makes this your show. We'll give Michael just a moment to get dialed in, and um, we are going to start on our study of the Enlightenment today, and so looking forward to do that and a lot of people have ordered books but several people didn't order them until over the weekend and today is a holiday Martin Luther King so the mail is not running so I've got like eight enlightenments packaged up to go in the mail first thing in the morning so um, but Michael said that you wouldn't need it for today that the introduction and the uh, what he's going to talk about today that you would not need your book so that'll be all right And I hope everybody is staying warm and staying safe. We'll give Michael just a moment to dial in. And I'll direct you to the website, whyagain.org. Actually, um, I created a new page, and I haven't finished it yet. So it actually says on it, this page is under construction. (laughs) But the easiest way to find it is to go all the way down. The most recent pages, uh, it says our latest post. They're down at the very bottom. It shows eight of them. And so look up consciousness. And when you click on that, it will take you. I've got uh, several things out there about the conscious, the subconscious, and the unconscious mind. Uh, some things about inherited patterns, which is out of the Wygen book. The inner child. And uh, what do we pass on to the next generation? So it is still under construction, but I hope you go out there and visit it. And let me know if you have some ideas. And uh, I'm going to see if Michael is having a challenge getting on here. All right. Just checking to, to refresh the switchboard just in case it's on my end that he's not showing up being out there. Welcome to the show. And there he is. So welcome, Michael. Are you with us? Thank you, dear heart. And welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here to join us for this ongoing conversation about 
first century Aramaic forgiveness and a deeper understanding of how these human forms called bodies work, how the, uh, the mind works, and you know, we're going to start, as Jeannie said, the Enlightenment book today. And it really is a, uh, a correct title for this body of work that comes out of the first century Aramaic language of Yeshua. If we have a comprehension of the structure that is laid out in that language, we can go light years beyond what most of the world is doing. Without it, there are all kinds of theories and no, 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 all sorts of things that people work toward to get what they want, or at least what they think they want, have their goals fulfilled. And then you come to the point where you realize it's not about your goals. So, interesting process that we're going through. Is uh, is Susan on, uh, Jeannie? Yes. Hey there, young lady. We watched that... Um, that piece on Carl Jung that you were talking about? Oh, yes. Very did. interesting. Yes, yes, Wasn't we that did. wonderful? Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, I would love to spend some time with that man as a, a master, just to be in his energy field. Mm-hmm. And I wish, I wish he'd had the distinction that... Love is not something we do to each other, but it's what we are. And that forgiveness was not about letting other people off the hook, but rather going inside of ourselves and alleviating, our, alleviating ourselves of the shadow that he so skillfully talks about. There are so many pieces of, uh, of the puzzle that uh, Jung put together. What a, what a genius mind and being pretty sweet. So how are you today? Fine. Uh, Not as as cold as some of you are. Pennsylvania is about 17 degrees or something like that. I haven't looked since morning, so it might be warmer. I hear you're down to what? Didn't Jeannie say it was minus six or something? No, we're gonna we're gonna be at minus six uh, later later in the week or next week. They're calling for. Oh, okay. So, All right. Now we're probably we were I, w- I was out doing a couple of errands to get out, get free from the snow and the literally the the flakes are getting exponentially larger as the morning carries on. <laughs> so I got out and back yeah. in time, but it was in the in the low thirties at that point. But they're saying oh, we're I gonna see. get down to minus six well, sooner rather than later. Yeah. The thing about the Alan Watts, I love his voice, just to start. I love how he chuckles and his low voice. Right. And have, hearing him read Jung was, is wonderful in itself. The redeeming thing about what Carl Jung said is along the lines of what that priest Fenelon was saying, 
Carl Jung was saying none of us is without the shadow, the dark, gray, bad stuff. But he said if you can be aware of it, welcome it. Not welcome it. What did he say? He just said be kind to yourself about it. Yeah, befriend it. Embrace Um, it rather than run away from it. mm -hmm. Reminds me a lot of what Dr. Tim has been sharing. Uh, It's true. Dr. Tim's been telling me specifically because whenever I do anything, there's always this element of, you know, guilt or shame or self-blame or thinking I'm less, all that stuff, which is just so tiresome, but I do it constantly. And the way Jung... You say you used to do it constantly? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shut up, Michael. You're ready to say something. Go ahead and say... No, 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 I'm I'm listening. (laughs) I thought you caught some something that I said that you wanted to put right. <clears throat> no, I'm with you being right on track, embracing it all. You know, the, what, the bottom line of everything that, uh, that Young was saying there was, to me, bring love to the party. You know, yeah. if I can bring conscious, active, present love to this, then this is going to heal. You know, I can go back and... 30-plus years ago in an intensive, and I'm trying to understand what, what's the bottom line of healing? What's required? What does it take? And there'd been a really powerful shift in one person's field, like miraculous-type shift in this intensive. Mm. And I'm sitting there going, well, why just them? Why not everybody? What, what's going on here? What's yeah. the bottom line of healing? And, and it was just really clear what I was told was, so two things have to happen. Something we've been hiding, the shadow, the unconscious, has to mm-hmm. come forward. Now, if that just comes forward, that can lead to crazy time. But when it comes forward in the presence of love, active present love, the actual presence of our human beingness, then mm. it's transformed instantly. And the mind is the only thing that carries all this, you know, there's something wrong with you, the, you know, basically the power person dynamic. I, I could, uh, in, in listening, I could easily hear him alluding to what we've presented as the power person dynamic and the behaviors related to the power person dynamic. And, and of course, the mm. healing can follow that. So That's what we'd be here for. I had a question along all of these lines. It's taken <clears throat> many different approaches, including two podcasts uh, called We Can Do Hard Things that Tim Hayes has been recommending we listen to. So wonderful what those women say. In fact, they wrote themselves love letters that reminded me of Magda's grandfather letter, how she imagined or cathected or whatever the word is. It doesn't matter. They say it doesn't matter whose voice it is. Is it yours? Is it God's? It doesn't matter. It's the voice of love, and so it's real. And um, it reminded me of Magda's grandfather letter. These two women, Glennon Doyle and um, Abby, I don't remember Abby's last name, uh, wrote themselves these love letters. And they were like that. And... um, all, all of these 
approaches seem to complement one another. Whereas, and this isn't to blame or point fingers, it's my own work that I've been falling short of. I've done many worksheets on my situation with our guest here in the house. And I have felt as if I just keep banging up until uh, up on a stone wall. I don't get past a certain level of frustration and I'm right and all that garbage. Somehow, listening to these podcasts and having and listening to Carl Jung have him say, okay, we're all looking at it. We're all looking at the snakes in the pit, the darkest of the dark, and I've been doing a lot of that. He's saying, don't get nasty with yourself. They Bring life to the party. Saying, yeah. <clears throat> it's all helped to cause a shift, even though I don't know if I've given up goals or what's happened, but something has loosened up about, and it may unloosen again. I don't know because I've gone in and out of this state of frustration many times, but right now I feel almost completely free of that frustration and willing to just say, let's see what happens. Nothing's The fruit of your work. Nobody's in a rush. What? That's the fruit of your work. It is, but you know, each time feel fruitful. <laughs> well, but no. this, but you're eating the fruit now, so <laughs> it's not it's not going to come in the bucket the way you want it. But notice that as you peel each layer of whatever the shadow, you, if we call it the shadow in Young's language, hostility or fear, mm-hmm. if you bring it to the presence of love, then another layer of it gets peeled away, and another layer. It's like it's like turning down the volume on the noise. Each time you yeah. forgive, and that's where, you know. Yes, you said, well, you probably have quite a few worksheets to do around that, and so let's yeah. do it. Right. And then if you get to a whole new level of vitality, if you're not finished with it, then a whole deeper, perhaps even more powerful level than ever is going to surface. And that will be the piece de resistance. That will be no, the piece I'll that will finish know. it. We'll mm. be holding the space. Thanks. Mm. All right. Well, appreciate you, and let's open up the Enlightenment book, and let's head in that direction. So with the, um, and, and again, the whole focus of Enlightenment is to bring forward as accurately as we can in this language the first century meanings of the words of this man, Yeshua. One of the things he says is, my words are your perfect life. And he also tells us that the power of life and death is in our words. When you put those things together, you recognize that we can heal ourselves or we can kill ourselves via the use of words, which of course are reflections of frequencies that we engage in. If we go back to Einstein, Einstein starts out with this. On such things as matter, we have been all wrong. What we have heretofore called matter is energy, energy whose vibrations have been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. We don't live in a material world. Reminder. 
We live in a world that is organized by the frequencies we engage in, and our words determine, or reflect, I should say, the frequencies that we are engaging in. And here's a man who had reached a level where he had put together frequencies that enhanced life, overcame the disintegrative aspect of life that we call death, literally, and said, the things I do, you too can do. However, it's not happening in this Western world. People are in such confusion because we don't have access to his words. We have access to Greek ideas about his words, Greek projections about his words, but the actual frequency of the energy that fell from his lips, we've lost. And ideally, we'd probably all go to Aramaic school and learn Aramaic on the deepest level. But that's probably not practical in this culture, so we're going to do what's second best, and we're going to do the best we can to bring his words and his ideas forward in this English language. One, to utilize those words to assist and support in undoing, throwing out the language, the words, the frequencies that create death, and engaging in those frequencies that are life-enhancing. I've offered before my, my take on what life is, and if you hold a newborn child, you get really clear really fast that the newborn is love. That's the stuff we're made of. And everything that comes from that enhances life. And the best definition of life I've been able to come up with yet, at least for me, is that life is love flowing through a cell. You know, if we just have love but no form in which to, with which to express it, it's probably not going to come to awareness very well. So love flowing through a cell and the things that we do to inhibit that, literally, physiologically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, society-wise, they're the things that destroy us. Those frequencies that never belong, that are off base. Vladimir Lenin, probably responsible for more deaths than any human being in history, understood this. And he said, if you want to destroy a culture, you change the meaning of its words. Pretty brilliant. Yeshua says the power of life and death is in our words. Lenin says if you want to destroy a particular expression of humans, we call culture, then change the meaning of its words. Take its frequencies away. So what we're looking to do with this study, and I don't know how long it's going to take. You know, we might be finished with this in a month, and we might still be at it three years from now. I, I don't know how this is going to unfold, this work with the Enlightenment book. But we want to particularly engage in words to describe the tool of removing frequencies that don't belong. And 
That brings us to a word that's really been abused and misused in our culture, just horrifically. And it's a word that is an archery term. And if you're on the archery range and you pulled back your bow and you aimed right on the target and you missed the bullseye, the scorekeeper would yell, sin, you're off the mark. I.e., positive feedback, take another shot. Now that word sin, think of it in terms of words. What kind of things have, have we had modeled for us and hooked up for us around the words, the word sin? What frequencies, what words go with that in this culture? Oh, it's evil, it's wicked, it's guilt, it's blame. All kinds of frequencies of degradation. So we want to lift that word up out of the mud, a la the Aramaic language. And so to recognize that all that word means, like let go of, forgive all of the baggage around that word, and recognize that all it means is it's a piece of positive feedback that tells us when we're off target. And it's an invitation to get back on target. Another word that ties closely to that is the word evil. And in the Aramaic, we get another major correction. It's an archery term. If you fired at the target and you missed the bullseye, it was sin. If you missed the target altogether, it was evil, like you're totally off target. That's all it means. So I'm going to invite everybody to consider throwing away all of the baggage, doing the work required to unhook all of the disintegrative frequencies that we've had hooked to the words sin and evil. Einstein, so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses, there is no matter. So if we hook frequencies of hate and fear and guilt and pain and drama and trauma to those words, they lose their usefulness, which to a great degree, coming from the Greek translations, that's what's happened. And they've lost their usefulness. People are, I mean, you, you can just watch people prickle when somebody uses the word sin, and yet adjust your aim is really all it means. It means be aware that the energy that you're engaging in isn't on target for you. So if we throw away the baggage, it's a wonderful word, a really useful, useful word. And yet so many people carry so many abusive frequencies from those who haven't done their work. And so if we're off target, it's going to be hard to have a life that's fulfilling. So if someone we trust can tell us that something is off target when we don't realize that we're off target, they've given us a gift. One of the powerful examples of the use of words comes at the beginning of each of the Beatitudes in the Aramaic language. 
if you've got the Enlightenment book or when you get it, I'd invite you to go to Matthew 5 and just render the words that are in Aramaic in the text with your own hand. Write it out. Don't look at, you know, the product of what's in there was two times around longhand writing out from the Aramaic comprehension of the words of Beatitudes. But just take that first word, which the Greeks translate as blessed are they, which to me implies there's some sort of external thing that's going to come and bless us. But actually, that word in Aramaic, you'll see in the Enlightenment book, is tuvehun. Tuvehun is a three-part word. It speaks of unconscious dynamics. It speaks of a guidance system. And it speaks of whether or not that guidance system is active or inactive. So Tuvehun gives us the insight that there literally are neural structures in us that the Creator planted in us to guide us. And if they're active, you're going to be on target with everything. If they are inactive, this is all, this whole thought structure is all included in this word too, Balaam. If those neural structures, we could say brain cells, are inactive, the Beatitudes say that you who follow these instructions will come into conscious possession of and be able to use this latent guidance system. And what the guidance system is designed for is to make available thoughts and actions that will increase your happiness and well-being. What do you suppose would happen if we went out to... do an interview on the street. And we gathered people and said, if there was a thought structure that could bring you to happiness and fulfillment and well-being, where do you suppose you would find it? And I suspect most people would go off on some sort of a, a rant about, you know, somewhere out there up in the clouds or somewhere some genius person or some holy person or but where in our culture have we been told that that neural structure lies within us the world is busy, you know it, it's interesting the word educate, educari means to draw out it does not mean to put in. And yet you'd think when kids go to school that the objective is to fill those little minds with information as opposed to the objective is to activate the neural structure that is already within us designed by the Creator to guide us to happiness and well-being. It's in every one of us. And if it's inactive, the whole set of the Beatitudes, and we're not going to talk about those today individually, but we actually there's a radio show we did back several months ago. There, I think we did three or four sessions 
where we went through the Beatitudes. But basically, this word tuvion at the beginning of each of the Beatitudes says, hey, folks, there's a neural structure in you, and here are the steps for activating it. I mean, who ever heard of such a thing? I certainly never heard of such a thing in church. I heard a lot about sin and guilt and fear and punishment and hell, but I never heard anybody say, God planted in you a nerve structure to guide your life to happiness and well-being, and here's how you get it rocking in you. Here's how you get it activated. How different, and I, I venture to say, would every life that's listening to these words right now, how different would each of our lives have been if from the very beginning someone was whispering in our ear, it's inside of you. There's actually a neural structure that will guide you perfectly. And then you look at the bizarreness of the Greek words that have been substituted there. And we'll just cover one beatitude because this is one of my favorite, aside from sin and its correction, it's one of my favorite corrections in the whole Aramaic language. Because we're told by the Greek translators, and you know, if, if Yeshua were to sit in most centers where they ostensibly are talking about his work today, he would say, that's all Greek to me. Because what the Greeks said is, you know, if we listen to Yeshua, he talks about this spirit within. And the Greek says, what you're supposed to do is be poor in it in order to be fulfilled and happy. And the mistranslation of that word, and I'm going to go through a few different mistranslations to point out the importance of the Aramaic and to assist people to recognize the primacy of the Aramaic. Now, there'll be many people who will rage and scream. I mean, literally, I've had people rage at me. No, it was all done in Greek. They did it in Greek. Well, I don't know. If you know any Semitic peoples, Arabs, Jews, how many of them can you imagine if they had a mature, incredible, beautiful way of life to offer, how many could imagine that Semitic person turning to the Greek and saying, tell you what, we've, we've gotten a written language, but why don't you write it down for us? You, you, you write it. You'll, you'll do a better job than we will. Can you imagine any Semitic person doing that? I mean, it's crazy on its face. So I'm just going to point out a few specific passages, and this is one of them, where the render, rendition is just so ridiculous that, and then when you see the correction, you go, oh, well, that makes sense. And you don't have to argue with the scholars about, was it Greek or was it Aramaic? It's just simple that this is a ridiculous, I mean, Yeshua says, you know, you can deny me, but, but don't deny that one I'm here to connect you with, Ruka. Don't, don't do that. Make sure you stay connected. And yet, here the preachers are trying to get us to be poor in that very thing that Yeshua said is the one thing you need to stay connected with. So in Aramaic, this first beatitude renders, you who have a home 
in Rucha, which is the eternal forces from God. If that's your home. Now, most people are pounded into their heads, and their home is in their heads. As though reason was the answer. And all reason does is give us resonance, ties in with energy systems that are automatic. So the first proof for me of the primacy of the Aramaic over the Greek is rather than blessed are they who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua in essence says be rich in spirit, but here we are, we're, we're telling people they're supposed to be poor in it. And that that's going to bring you some kind of blessing where in Aramaic it says, God implanted in your mind neurostructures with which to guide you when they are active. If they are inactive, you who follow these instructions will come into conscious possession of and be able to use this latent guidance system designed to make available thoughts and actions that will increase your happiness and well-being. You who have a home in the active or eternal forces from God, for yours is an heavenly estate. Now, I, I can't imagine how anybody could say, no, no, I want to stick with this poor thing, the Greeks. When they hear that, it's an invitation to, to get out of your head and live in this energy field. You know, we're told we live in an energy field. In it, we live, move, and have our being. And most people withdraw from it and get stuck in this little pea brain, this little nine-bit mind between their ears. And they think that's, you know, I mean, was it Dick Hart that said, I think, therefore I am? Well, Mr. Dick Hart, I doubt you did much thinking. I suspect what you did is you lived in a world of resonance and you had a pretty bright mind. And you were able to put a lot of pieces together. But thinking, resonating information in brain cells, firing information in brain cells that makes you look bright to others has got nothing to do with living as a human being. And as a human being, you are designed to live in the eternal forces in which you are steeped, in which you live, move, and have your being. So the first couple of pieces of the puzzle, and I would like to uh, just you know put the invitation out there at any point where you have a thought, a question, if something, you know, uh, what I'm working toward doing is putting some building blocks in place and creating a foundation, and then we'll build up to the first story, second story. We'll, so as the study unfolds, we'll build and build and build. And so if a foundation block is missing, the foundation's not going to be very solid. So if anything I'm saying doesn't make sense, or is incomplete for you, or you need some more brain cells for it, or I need some more brain cells for it, please push one, ask your question. Put it right in wherever the conversation is going. And together we'll 
over whatever time period we're working with this text. Put together the building. By the way, if you're listening and you weren't aware that we were going to do this study and you'd like to get a copy of the Enlightenment book, the latest printed copy is available. And you can go to our website and order it from our catalog. And if you do that, it's $25. And then the catalog or the program automatically adds $9 shipping. Or rather than doing that, if you go to our website, down toward the bottom of the page, there's a donate button. And if you hit that donate button, we can't make this adjustment in the catalog. But if you hit the donate button and you donate $26, the book's 25 one extra dollar, that takes care of what PayPal gets out of it. And we have PayPal as a gateway. You don't have to have PayPal to, to purchase a book or to make a donation. You can use a credit card or your own PayPal or your bank, however you do it. But if you go to that donate button and donate $26, we'll pay the shipping. And we'll get it out to you quickly. And uh, the if you put in the, the payment, there's a place for notes. Put your name and your address and tell us it's for enlightenment. Then the next day, or, or in some cases that day, if it's early enough for that day, we'll get it in the mail to you and get it off to you as quickly as possible. So I hope that's making sense as our foundation point. Jeannie, any thoughts for you or anybody in the phone queue with a hand up? Anything happening in the chat room? We do have a hand up. I'm not sure if it's left over from Dr. Tim, but uh, 541, you are on the air. Okay, I think it's from Linda. Linda, you're Hello. on the air. How are you? Hey there, young lady. You? We're good. We're rocking. Okay, I have a couple of questions for you. Uh, well, one question and a comment, um, if a comment is appropriate. Well, one thing is you mentioned the Aramaic understanding of Job when he was taught. It was something. It was a couple of days ago, but I never was able to get back in to ask you. Um, where, What Bible versions do you use um, for finding any of the Aramaic when it hasn't been translated from the Kaburas manuscript yet? Well, I've got several sources that I've gone to. Uh, the, my original uh, introduction to the Aramaic, which is about mm, 30, I'm not even sure, 35, 36 years ago, was through a gentleman named Rocco Erico. Okay. Rocco is a protege of a man named George Lamsa. Lamsa did a translation back in the geez, 40s, I guess, maybe 50s. I'm not even sure of the time frame. And he made, when the text came out, unfortunately, the Lamsa Bible is very limited. There's some great introductory material in it, but it's very sparse and limited in, the, in its corrections. My understanding is that he made something like 17 or 1800 corrections. And he only, at, at the point where he was translating, he was having his life threatened by so-called Christians who didn't like okay. the fact that he wasn't going, going along with the King James. 
and he said okay. that uh, he should have been making somewhere between ten and twelve thousand changes. And if I remember correctly, he made about seventeen hundred. So that's one of my sources. And Rocco and I worked together for several years. I used to bring him into my center in South Florida, and he used to have me come out to uh, to California to his center to speak and present. And so the the Lamsa translation isn't that great a source because it's very limited. However, both Rocco and George Lamsa have written several books, and some of those books are gospel light, more light of the gospel, idioms of the Bible explained, Old Testament light. There's a whole series. If you can find anything by George Lamsa and Rocco Erico on the Aramaic, that will fill in. And I've found that those commentaries are far richer than the actual book itself because of the limited translations uh, or the limited changes that he made. George Lamsa was born in a native Aramaic-speaking family, so he he didn't have to unlearn what the Greeks had brainwashed him with, but he knew these things from his own culture, his own cultural background and language. Uh, So that's one source. Another is, um, uh, what's his name? Let me get get to it. He did a translation of the Lord's Prayer, and I'm not remembering his name right now, but he's got some good good material, you know, around the idea of the Lord's Prayer and such. And then the the rest of the... Neil Douglas Klotz, yes. Yes. Thank you. Because he was my first introduction... Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, his work on the Lord's Prayer, although he and and actually Rocco still does this, and I think it is a great disservice to people, he still calls the Lord's Prayer a prayer. They both do. And it's not a prayer. In Aramaic, it's not a prayer. And I've never heard, you know, this is something that I realized personally as I worked with it, as I taught from it. And uh, I would love to get this piece of information to Rocco, but Rocco tends to be, I mean, he's a wonderful man, very sensitive, but tends to be rather resistant to anything new. But if you you think about, you know, this is to me is just another piece in building our foundation uh, toward understanding more about the Aramaic. You think about the context of what People call the Lord's Prayer, and then you look at how people go directly 180 degrees against Yeshua's instructions, who says, do not repeat and repeat like the pagans. Don't do that. That's, that's going to the mind. That's, that's being locked in the mind. And, you know, the question that they asked him uh, was, and, and obviously there was a lack of understanding and perhaps confusion as today there's great confusion about the word prayer because we have this Greek idea that prayer is putting our order into the cosmic gift catalog. And yet they didn't ask Jesus to say Yeshua to say a prayer for them. They asked him to teach them how pray. And there's another word that's been grossly misrepresented by the Greeks. Oh, just tell, you know, put your word in the cosmic gift catalog, tell God what you want, and then you've said a prayer. Well, actually, properly labeled, properly defined, that would be a petition. Asking for something, a petition, doesn't say don't have one, but, but that's not prayer. They asked Yeshua, 
because they obviously didn't understand to teach them, and he taught them. Now, to use an example, and, and I'm sure you've heard me say this before, but there are other folks listening too, so it's for everybody. But if, if um, let's say I were a voice coach and a, a, a teacher of, of singers, and you wanted to learn from me, and you said, Michael, teach me to sing, would I be teaching you to sing if I sang you a song? Obviously not. I mean, you might learn something, incidentally, from my singing a song, but I wouldn't be teaching you to sing. Yeshua didn't say a prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. Yeshua said, here's a set of instructions. Here's how. You do this thing called prayer, and the word prayer in Aramaic means more closer to a literal meaning is to set a trap for God, which in our English language for most people is kind of a shocker. It's, well, you're going to trap God. What the heck does that mean? But when you recognize that this man, Yeshua, did not live in a perceptual mind, he didn't live in the world of appearances, he lived in the actuality of relationship with life, with his creator, and so if, if you think of and recognize, and we'll, we'll bring Einstein into it here, that we live in an energy system, basically an antenna is what has to be the right shape and it has to be oriented properly in order to capture the signal it's designed to capture. You know, if I have a, let's say we've got a, a TV station here, we'll say it's Channel 4, and I go to Buffalo, New York, and I buy an antenna for Channel 4 in Buffalo, New York. Well, the carrier wave for the TV station in Buffalo, New York, New York and the carrier wave here in Bristol, Virginia, is a totally different thing. And if I bring that antenna down here and try to capture Channel 4, I'm probably going to get a snowy, lousy picture. I need an antenna that is the proper shape to capture the frequency, and I'm going to need to orient that properly. If I put it up on the roof and I align it and somebody comes along in the night and turns the antenna backward, am I going to get a good signal from channel two? And you probably remember as I do, you know, this is kind of a thing that's, that's gone now pretty much. Uh, kids would, wouldn't even know what you were talking about. But you probably remember when you wanted to change channels. And when you changed channels, you went over and you hit a little crank. You, I can remember having a manual crank, and then I can remember having an electric crank that literally turned the antenna, and you tuned the antenna. You oriented it so you got a good signal. Do you remember doing that? No, because uh, we were backwards enough that we had to crawl up on the roof to do it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I don't well, ever remember. Little... <laughs> I don't ever remember a crank. <laughs> and we okay. never had a crank. You were one up on well, it. <laughs> well, I, I, can, I can remember the, the 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 day my dad took this motor and you know put it on the pipe. And the motor turned the antenna so you didn't have to physically move. But the same net result, what was it doing? It was orienting the properly shaped antenna in the right direction to get the best signal. That's what the word prayer means. You and I are custom designed by the creator to capture and reflect the presence of love into the world. And if we've been misaligned, if we've been given frequencies that are out of harmony with that, then what we need to do is get back into alignment. And that's what 
what people call the Lord's Prayer. That's what it is. It's a set of instructions, and later I'm planning to get into those instructions, but that's that's what the word means. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, tell tell the Cosmic Gift Catalog to bring you something. And that's interesting that you say that, Michael, because I somehow interpreted Neil Douglas's clause when he talked about the divine principles and the and mm-hmm. the harmony, you know, the one harmony. Well, for me, the harmony right. is more of a heart issue, and the principles are more of a head in, in issue. And since you've mentioned that we are antennas ourselves and we have to align, um, I got it that the prayer... I didn't get it as a teaching tool, but I got it as the prayer was telling me to align my vision with the vision of the cosmos. And I'm coming to the realization I don't have a clue about the vision of the the cosmos other than what little bits and pieces I get. So it's kind of like, well, I know that this life force is in charge and not me, except, of course, I forget it in my daily life, right? So I have to keep reconnecting. That, and you, might want, you might want to look at that line. You might want to look at those words. Notice the assumption that somebody's fed you that, of course, I'm going to go out of alignment. That might be a good word right. for the topic. In my, in my daily life, because I catch myself being yep. out of alignment, yep. not because somebody's yep. told me. But Larry will yeah. say something that I'm highly resistant to, and after I return to sanity, I'll say, well, he was right. You know, he was my feedback loop, oh. <laughs> and, 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 and not always, you know, but enough to know that I'm constantly realigning my antenna, and I also include the body in that antenna. I wanted to share that with you. So insight, inspiration, and intuition all have to be lined up as well in yeah. my perception at the moment. Yeah. yeah. And if, if you ever get to do an intensive where it's an in-person intensive, we'll actually, uh, there's a piece of work in the intensive, uh, at least the nine-day wire, the teacher's training, there's a hands-on energy field work process, work process that we teach that literally I designed for physiologically aligning your antenna you you have an antenna the structure of your bones is not to hold your body up your muscles do that the structure of your bones like the line the arms on the antenna and the standard in the antenna that's what is designed to capture the frequencies we're designed for and you know the the kid that gets the cuff in the head year after year, day after day, gets bashed around. The antenna literally is physiologically misaligned. And until we bring that back into alignment, and that's part and parcel of the energy field work for getting this antenna back to its proper orientation, back into its proper range of motion, because it's literally a self-adjusting antenna that is in continuous motion every minute that we're alive. And if something interferes with that motion, it loses its its patterned way of moving and tends to get stuck. And so the energy field work is about getting it unstuck, getting the whole, literally the physiological device back into a property aligned state so that it brings the frequencies in that it's designed to. 
and well, the so-called our, Lord's Prayer is an instruction set for for aligning our minds and emotions with that. Right. And I just realized that our whole cultural sedentary lifestyle and over-focus on computer work and stuff like that is also on how we lose our alignment with just our anatomy from youth to old age and become a question mark, basically, except we don't even know it's a question mark in our, in our structure. Structure is important. It's literally the core antenna that allows us to, to, and if it's moving through its proper range of motion, you know, people think when the baby's soft spot hardens, the head is fixed, but actually if you get really tuned in and hold that baby's head or you hold an adult's head, you'll notice that there's this very subtle, slight movement. It's just a millimeter or two, like very tiny bit of motion, and that's the self-adjusting antenna. And, you know, the shape of an antenna determines the frequencies it receives. If I have the perfect antenna on the roof for Channel 4 here and it's perfectly aligned and somebody goes up and bends all the arms on the antenna, I'm not going to get a very good signal. Right. The structure of the head, the spine, the pelvis, and the bones. I mean, right now, your arms, your hips are continuously moving just a millimeter or two in a semicircular motion in and out. And in when you're at the stage they call extension, which means you're in its, and I'm not sure why they use this language, it seems to me it would be the opposite, but it's called extension when your antenna is at its most constricted state. That's one shape. And then when you do what's called flexion, where it moves that millimeter or two in your whole structures in a totally, completely different state that, you know, the average person never even notices, but it's a different state. It's literally a totally, completely different antenna. It's night and day. And the every millimeter, every fraction of a millimeter between is a different frequency receiver and if we are in that proper range of motion and activity then we bring in a full rich possibility parcel to me of that underlying neural structure that was being talked about in the Beatitudes getting it all back into shape very good thank you I'm just awesome young lady I hope that um, what I would ask, if it's possible, is if you could give every possible uh, reference to Lamsa and um, the other gentleman's name, which just slipped out. Rocco Erico. Rocco Erico, thank you. Yeah. Um, No. We're going to be referring to the Kaboras. That's that's pretty much going to be it. I. I mean, this is stuff I've been doing with Rocco and uh, and um, Lamsa for decades, so I don't have references for all of that. No, you I won't be doing that. Oh, uh, so, oh you don't but, have references? No. Okay. So I, I'll just. I'm not. I'm not reading this from a book. 
I'm not I'm no, not I reading this that. from a book or from notes. It's just part of the presentation that we're going to be doing. So, do I remember I when Rocco Erico said this or that? And can I give that reference? No, or when when Lamsa did, or when the work we did uh, in the uh, social service agencies in Albany, Georgia. This was the live doing the work live between myself and a gentleman named Dan McDougall, who was my partner at that point. So. We'll be drawing okay. on all of that over the last four plus oh, decades. Perfect. And um, I have cool. something to say about beliefs, but I'll wait for another show. Something. All right, young lady. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Blessings. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. So a couple of other uh, references that are uh, ridiculous translations in the Greek. And then when you hear the Aramaic, it's just, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. So, And, I, and I'm going to catch a couple of them before we close. We've just got a few minutes. So I'm going to go to Job 12.6, which the Greeks tell us, and, and this is, I mean, when you think about it, it's so bizarre. The Greeks tell us, quote, the tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure and into whose hands God bring it abundantly. So basically, what Job, according to the Greeks, is saying, if you're a robber, God's on your side. Provoke God, and you're going to have abundance. I mean, it's just silly on its face. And to me, again, this is another way to prove the primacy of the Aramaic. So let's listen to what the Aramaic says. The Aramaic says, the tents of robbers shall perish and the assurance of those who incite God, they will perish also because there is no God in their hearts. There is no love in their hearts. So you can easily tell which one is accurate there. Surely nobody believes that the Creator is going to be there to prosper robbers and bring abundance to them. In Aramaic, the tents of robbers shall perish, and the assurance of those who incite the Creator will perish also because there is no love in their hearts. And then Job 31.10, basically the conversation that precedes this particular passage, Job is talking about, you know, he's been accused of things, of, of, of wrongdoing. And so he's saying, well, if they have now, so here's the Greek translation, then let my wife grind unto another and let others bow down upon her. In other words, if I've cheated, take my wife and do it with her what you will. There's a, 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 another similar Greek-oriented translation that says, let my wife be in another man's abode and let others have relationships with her. In other words, if I've cheated, turn my wife into a sex object. No. This is a patriarch? No, come on. Are you serious? In Aramaic, what does it say? Then let my wife grind meal for others and let her bake bread in another man's place. In other words, she's going to have to go and earn a living elsewhere. And put a hold on it there because we're down. The show just warned me we're down to the last minute. So I'm going to say thank you for joining us. I hope this is a been a, a good foundation point for you and serves well. If it has brings questions for you, please make note of the questions. Let's bring them up in the show tomorrow. 
Thanks for being with us, and blessings. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Mind Shifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.